Hello out there. Whether you're a loyal listener or new to the show, I'm so glad you're here. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo about all things menopause. In part one, we laid the groundwork with a chat about what to expect during menopause and why changing sex hormones impact our bodies so profoundly in so many ways and for so many years. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of menopausal hormone therapy, which used to be called hormone replacement therapy. We'll discuss the benefits, risks, and many different ways that hormones can be delivered. We'll also set the record straight on the term bioidentical, which is often misused for marketing purposes. Finally, we'll touch on hormone testing panels and why they may not be as useful as you've been led to believe. Dr. DiGirolamo brings incredible credentials and a wealth of experience to this discussion. She's an MD, PhD, who is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She's also a NAMS certified menopause specialist who has worked with many women to guide them through this challenging transition time. Dr. DiGirolamo is also a huge advocate for investing in a healthier lifestyle. She is a certified CrossFit trainer and nutrition coach and is just generally a super strong, inspiring woman. In the next episode, I'll be sharing our brief conversation about some of the ways that you can improve your well-being through lifestyle choices. For more great stuff from Dr. DiGirolamo, check out her website and social media at FitForLifeMD. I also highly recommend her newsletter called Athletic Aging, which you can find on Substack. On a personal note, I am in the thick of navigating my menopause transition and want you to know that you're not alone if you're not feeling like yourself, but are overwhelmed and confused by all the different options. I found this conversation to be incredibly helpful and hope that you do too. Of course, this podcast does not constitute medical advice, and I encourage you to talk to your family doctor or menopause specialist about your options. They can help you figure out your unique personal risk-benefit equation, because this looks a little bit different for everybody. Thank you again for taking the time to educate yourself about this important yet often neglected topic. Don't forget to also check out the accompanying episodes with Dr. DiGirolamo, as well as the resources listed in the show notes. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. DiGirolamo. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Chana, for having me. It's a pleasure. So this is a continuation of our conversation about menopause. And if you missed it, we just had a conversation about what is menopause and talking through the menopause roadmap. So now we're going to talk about thriving during this transition and what sort of tools are at our disposal to do that. So let's start with the hormone therapy. So what is menopausal hormone therapy? So menopausal hormone therapy is any type of hormone that we use to treat symptoms. It could be estrogen or synthetic estrogens. It could be progesterone. It could be synthetic progesterone, which are called progestins. It could be testosterone. It could be DHEA. Those are the main hormones that are used to treat menopausal symptoms. Yeah. So what is the goal of menopausal hormone therapy then? You sort of alluded to it, but maybe maybe the different goals, I suppose. Well, the goal is to treat symptoms. That's the main goal. There is one FDA-approved indication for osteoporosis and the prevention of it. In America, the North American Menopause Society 
recommends estrogen as an effective prevention of osteoporosis, where in Europe, they talk more about estrogen as a treatment for osteoporosis. So this kind of just highlights differences of opinion and different people's conclusions based on the studies that are out there. And that's what kind of makes it complicated is because there is a lot of debate. There's a lot of healthy debate on the use of these hormones and their indications. So, you know, what's FDA approved, what's licensed, what's not. There's lots of debate out there, but we just kind of make our way through it with the best evidence we have. So there was a recent expert consensus that was just posted by some European experts, I believe. Can you speak to what the highlights of that statement were? Sure. A few days ago, the British Medical Society and the Royal College of OBGYNs issued a joint position statement on appropriate use of menopausal hormone therapy. And the driver behind the statement coming out is that there is a lot of information out there that is suggesting or promoting hormone use that is way off the beaten path. Not just a reasonable debate or bending of the consensus, but really out there sorts of things. So the societies felt they needed to come together for providers and consumers to have a roadmap of, okay, this is what the evidence we have in front of us right now says. This is our interpretation of it. We are experts in menopausal treatment of women. And so this is what we recommend. So it's really a guideline, a roadmap for the standard of care and allows consumers to see where is the evidence lacking and where is the evidence solid so that they can have that conversation with their doctor and create their own risk benefit equation and decide whether hormone therapy is right for them or not. Right. So some of the areas where there is support, as you mentioned, treating menopausal symptoms and prevention, potentially treatment of osteoporosis, depending on who you ask. Is that right? Yes, yes. The short answer is yes. But I'm going to back up a little bit because part of the recommendations of this society and of the North American Menopause Society that came out with a similar position statement in 2017 is that lifestyle modifications, healthy diet and nutrition and fitness are your foundation. That's what needs to be addressed first, because you first have to exclude chronic disease. If you're having hot flashes, which is the most common symptom of menopause, you need to rule out thyroid disorders and other potential medical conditions. That's step one. Step two is to optimize people's lifestyle. If you are drinking a 24-ounce Starbucks coffee a half hour before you go to bed, well, maybe if you stop drinking the 24-ounce Starbucks coffee before you go to bed, maybe your hot flashes at night will get better. So lifestyle modifications, nutrition, fitness, once those things are optimized, then we kind of see, okay, what is remaining? What symptoms are still there? And then we decide, okay, now should we jump to hormone therapy to help with these symptoms? So in somebody who, you know, speaking about osteoporosis, in somebody who has a lot of risk factors, a mother with a hip fracture, a mother with osteoporosis, or they themselves maybe have had a stress fracture, maybe they're an elite athlete with a very low body mass index. Those people may want to have a bone density test sooner rather than later. And if they are declining, that is an excellent indication for hormone therapy to prevent osteoporosis from progressing. 
So that's an example that is pretty universal among the three societies that I just mentioned. That is a very universal recommendation. Everybody agrees that that is an appropriate indication for hormone therapy. There's pretty good agreement about hot flashes. The data is really solid that estrogen therapy or combined estrogen progesterone therapy is a very effective tool for combating hot flashes. Again, once you get rid of your Starbucks at nine o'clock at night, and once you work on your sleep hygiene, those interventions can help the hormones work better. So that's another reason why you always want to go that route first is because if you do still need therapy, you want to make that therapy work as well as you can. So hot flashes is a very popular indication and pretty much agreed on. Vaginal dryness and some of the atrophy that people experience, some of the genitourinary symptoms of menopause, that is also a very agreed upon indication for hormone therapy because we know that vaginal creams and rings and things like that that secrete hormone locally to the vagina can make a world of difference for helping the symptoms associated with that with painful intercourse you know this DHEA there's a product that was recently FDA approved for painful intercourse it's called prasterone so those are the pretty universally agreed upon indications I think some of the more controversial things is when we talk about prevention of other chronic disease, not including osteoporosis, because there is a clear indication to prevent osteoporosis with estrogen therapy, but cardiovascular disease and dementia are two very, very, very hot topics. The studies that look at women who use hormones for, say, you know, osteoporosis prevention, or they're using it for hot flashes, when they're using them for appropriate indications, and it's done within 10 years of the onset of menopause below the age of 60, younger women, that there are cardiovascular and cognitive benefits to it. But when they redesigned the studies to look at using hormone therapy specifically for prevention of cardiovascular disease or prevention of dementia, that's when the data gets muddy and confusing. And so because the data is not consistent, for use for prevention of those two things in particular. That's why the societies say, you know what, we can't promote the use of it for that because the data just doesn't support it. There's too much conflict within the data and we can't recommend it because it's just not clear. But in women using hormones for appropriate indications, like what I just mentioned, we do see benefits. And it's usually in the younger population. Once people are over 60, 65, that's when sometimes the risk-benefit equation starts to shift. The good news is, is that all the society agree that there shouldn't be a finite period of time where a woman should be on hormone therapy. If the risk-benefit equation makes sense for a particular woman, she can be on it for the long term. That's what's so refreshing about the direction that this research is moving, that it isn't just, boom, five years. Because everybody was saying five years. When the Women's Health Initiative came out, five years. And that was kind of just a media firestorm and just a lot of misinformation, disinformation out there about that study and the interpretation of it. But now it's pretty clear that we can accordingly with a woman's very specific risk-benefit equation. If she's a candidate, there's no reason she can't stay on it. Now, it's interesting to hear you talking about part of the motivation being sort of overuse or overprescription for maybe inappropriate indications when a few years ago, nobody wanted to touch hormone therapy, you know, following the WHI 
results. So it's crazy how much these pendulums can swing back and forth. You're usually talking about estrogen, right? With or without progesterone. That's the most common. That's absolutely the most common. And people use that, you know, whether or not you use a progesterone depends on whether you still have your uterus. What the progesterone does is it protects the endometrial lining from overgrowth and precancerous growth. So that's why if you have a uterus, you need progesterone exposure to the uterus to protect you from the estrogen. So IUDs that secrete progesterone, like the Mirena, like the, the Liletta, the Skyla, they secrete progesterone. I do recommend the Mirena. It's a higher dose progesterone. I would feel a little more confident in the endometrial protection that you get the Mirena more so than the others. And then that frees you up to use estrogen patches. It frees you up to use estrogen pills, creams, sprays, various other vehicles of administration. But yeah, that's typically the standard. Yeah. So for someone like me who has an intact uterus, I would be looking as the default at estrogen plus progesterone. So how do you go about navigating the different ways that the estrogen can be delivered? You mentioned patches or creams and so on. And then the dosing, how do you go about choosing the mode of delivery and the dose? What are the different considerations? I'll be honest, it's a lot of trial and error. I do like transdermal or patches for estrogen. It avoids the first pass liver effect. And what that is, is when you take an oral pill, the pill gets absorbed through the intestinal tract and then the medicine goes to the liver and then is metabolized. And when the liver sees estrogen products, it upregulates blood clotting factors, it affects cholesterol production, and you can have effects on your cholesterol and effects on your blood clotting factors with oral pills. And you don't see that same effect when you use a patch, because when you use a patch, it goes right directly into your bloodstream and it avoids the first pass liver effect. So I typically like transdermal products better. And patches are more more available than like creams and sprays and the doses is a bit more consistent. So patches is my preferred. It depends on the severity of someone's symptoms. You know, I usually start at a standard dose of like 0.05 with some progesterone. Maybe it's micronized progesterone, which is bioidentical. I like to use the bioidentical products as a first line because the synthetic progestins, more data is coming out that if people do develop breast cancer, and the risk of that is very, 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 very small in young women, when it happens, it's usually more associated with synthetic progestins than bioidentical progesterone. So I tend to use bioidentical patches for estrogen and bioidentical progesterone. So that's where I start. And then I let it settle out for six to eight weeks. If she's telling me her symptoms are much better, fantastic, we stay the course. If not, I make adjustments depending on what she's telling me. So I want to talk more about the word bioidentical because I think it's when that causes a lot of confusion. So can you elaborate on what it really means and then how the compounding versus the FDA approved layer as well? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question, a great topic. So what bioidentical means is that the product the patch, say we're we're talking about bioidentical estrogen. What's in that patch is exactly identical in chemical structure to the estrogen that's produced by the ovary during our reproductive life. And so it's basically, it's 17 beta estradiol. And so when it's bioidentical, it means it is identical in chemical structure to what the ovary naturally produces. Same thing with progesterone. 
micronized progesterone is the bioidentical form that is identical to what the ovary produces in our reproductive life after we ovulate. Progestins are synthetic derivatives of natural progesterone that are often put in IUDs, often put in birth control pills, and often in menopausal hormone therapy. But in menopausal hormone therapy, some of the therapies that have synthetic progestins in them are the ones that may have an association with breast cancer. So I do try to avoid those. One thing that's come up when I've been talking with friends about menopausal hormone therapy is that there's this feeling that if you want to choose bioidentical hormone therapy, you can't get this from your family physician or from a regular pharmacy who sells big pharma prescriptions. There seems to be a belief that you have to go to a naturopath or some other alternative clinic to get this bioidentical hormone therapy. So can you shed some light on what's going on here and how this term is being used? The reason why there's so much confusion is because if you go to a naturopath, a naturopath is going to do a huge panel of hormones, and they are going to tell you that they are going to create a concoction of the combination hormones that they think you need based on your lab levels as your bioidentical, meaning identical to what your body naturally needs. That is not the appropriate definition for bioidentical hormones. Bioidentical hormones are simply hormones that have the same chemical structure as your ovaries produced in their reproductive years. So the two different definitions, bioidentical simply refers to the hormone chemical structure, not some concoction that the naturopath has put together for you. Testosterone also is bioidentical. A lot of the products out there, it's natural testosterone. So that's the difference. But the FDA has plenty of approved bioidentical hormone products. Those are my first line ones, but I do sometimes prescribe testosterone to women. And the only FDA approved testosterone products that are out there are the ones for men. And men require a dose 10 times higher than women. And so if you try to get a male product and maybe just put a little tiny dab on your finger and put it on, that's just not going to give you accurate dosing. I think that's more dangerous than going to a compounding pharmacy that I rely on that does have oversight by the compounding, by the PCAB, which is the big pharmacologic body that oversees compounding pharmacies. And it's one I have experience with, and I can make the right formulation at the right dose that I need and have it be consistent and reputable. So coming back to estrogen and progesterone, you had said that you would normally use an FDA-approved product. Of course, in Canada, you'd look for a Health Canada-approved product and so on. Now, how do you know if those products are indeed bioidentical? Because if you're looking at a regulated product, like a, a drug from a typical drug company, they're probably not going to be using the word bioidentical. So how do you know if that product is the same hormone as you have in your body normally? So you want to look for 17 beta estradiol. If you see that on a label, and you know, you could Google, like say, combi patch, C-O-M-B-I patch, combi patch. If you Google that, you can see exactly what's in it. And you can tell, okay, does it have 17 beta estradiol? Yes, it does. If it says micronized progesterone, then that's bioidentical. Anything else besides that may not be. So that's when you kind of have to ask your doctor. If someone says, okay, this has 
levonorgestrel in it. Is that bioidentical? No, levonorgestrel is not. That's a synthetic progestin. So what you want to look for if you're looking for bioidentical is micronized progesterone or 17-beta estradiol. Those are the only ones, or testosterone. But again, your doctor will have to go through a compounding pharmacy to get that. Yeah. So is there any reason to compound? You mentioned that you compound testosterone because you can't get the right dose for women. But is there a reason to compound estrogen or progesterone? Only if there isn't a, an FDA-approved product on the market already. I find that there are enough FDA-approved products for bioidentical estrogen and progesterone that I don't have to compound those two. The only thing I have to compound is the testosterone to get the right dose because the dosing I need is not available in an FDA product. So that's really the only time you have to use a compounding pharmacy is if the dose isn't available through an FDA product. But I find that what's out there is adequate for all the treatment that I do for patients. And your recommendation is to just continue with trial and error to start with a lower dose and then and increase and Yeah, I mean, like I've been prescribing it for a long time, so I kind of know what dose works for most people. Like I said, 0.05 is usually my starting point. You can go up from there or you can go down from there. So 0.05 tends to be a good number in my own personal experience, and that's a 0.05 patch. So that's usually where I start. And then depending on if she's still having hot flashes, and then I may go up on that. And there's room to move either way. Progesterone, you don't really need to, you know, the dosing, it just kind of one dose, 200 milligrams of Prometrium. I like Prometrium. It comes in a vaginal suppository. It comes in an oral pill as well. I like that one. Patients like it. It has fewer side effects. You don't really tweak the dose as much for progesterone as you do with estrogen. But I think I read that the ratio of those two matters, or is that not true? No, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you just need enough progesterone to protect the endometrial lining. So a Mirena IUD, now Mirena IUD does not contain bioidentical progesterone, but it's okay, it's safe because the progestin is only secreted in the uterus. If you took blood levels with an IUD in place, you're not going to find that progestin in the circulation it is secreted locally. And that's why those are a lot safer to use than the oral progestins because those go right into your circulation and that's where there may be some risk. So that's kind of the exception. I do have a lot of women on IUDs where I give them the patch, but I'm comfortable doing that because that synthetic progestin is really not getting into the circulation to any appreciable extent. Right. So my takeaway on what I've kind of gleaned on this estrogen and progesterone is that for the estrogen, if you only care about the vaginal symptoms, you can use something local and a cream. But if you want systemic benefits like hot flashes or osteoporosis prevention, you need to use something systemic. That can be a pill or a patch. And your recommendation is to look for something that has 17 beta estradiol and is FDA approved. That's exactly right. There is one exception. There is a systemic vaginal preparation I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but there is one FDA-approved formulation that is a systemic estrogen, might even be combination estrogen-progesterone, that is a vaginal ring or vaginal insert. So there's one of those that is systemic, but most of the time, systemically, yeah, you're looking at a pill or a patch. And then for the progesterone, the purpose it's serving is to protect your endometrium, therefore you only need it locally. Is that correct? Well, there is an indication for oral progesterone for hot flashes at night. 
Progesterone alone can be very effective at nighttime to help people with sleep and hot flashes while they're sleeping. So I will use, and those people say they don't want to use estrogen or have a contraindication to it. If they're having hot flashes, one thing that I will start with is oral micronized progesterone in the evening. And I have, I have one patient on it right now and it's a godsend for her. Interesting. Okay. That's good. So now I think I've got those, the, at least the estrogen and the progesterone straight. What does micronized mean, by the way? It's just the way that it's processed. It's a processing thing. When you see the word micronized and it's in front of progesterone, that means it's bioidentical. And there's some evidence of a slightly elevated breast cancer risk with the synthetic progestins, but that risk wouldn't really be relevant unless you're taking it systemically. If you have it a synthetic in as an IUD, then you don't really have to worry about that breast cancer risk because it's not getting in, in circulation. Is that right? Right. It's theoretically less likely. They haven't studied it specifically. You don't know until you've actually done the study. But if you extrapolate from the data on the oral systemic progestins, if you have a progestin that's not getting in circulation, it's a reasonable speculation to say this is probably safer. So sometimes we still have to act on common sense in the absence of data. So that's why I feel comfortable with a uh, progestin IUD for endometrial protection. I worry less about the breast cancer risk in that situation. But, you know, I want to stress too, because I don't want people to get scared about breast cancer because I know that's been a huge source of fear. In younger women within 10 years of menopause below the age of 60, that risk is so, 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 so small. It's not zero. So we have to factor it into the equation. But it's small, just like the risk of blood clots. I think the, you know, the blood clot risk is a little bit more on my radar because I've seen more of that in all the years I've been prescribing hormones. That's small too, but again, it's not zero. And there are two factors that just need to be put into the risk-benefit equation. Yeah. And I appreciate it. In one of your newsletters, you gave a shout out to Avram Blooming, who's been doing so much work in trying to calm those fears around breast cancer in particular, and really doing a critical review on that. And he's even he actually published something just recently. He shared with me saying that only one out of 22 studies actually found an elevated risk. And, you know, that we're being very conservative, I guess, when we talk about a potential risk there. Yeah, no, I think the work that he's done has been so critical for calling out the media and those interpreters of the Women's Health Initiative that led to the fear for providers and patients, providers are just afraid of getting sued, you know, and they don't want to prescribe anything. But I think he was probably one of the key players. The book that he wrote, Estrogen Matters, I think really got the word out there that, hey, we need to call this out because this is just not acceptable. So I applaud him and his efforts for doing that. Yeah, I had him on my podcast earlier. So maybe I'll drop in the link for that as well for to check out that episode. I wanted to touch on testosterone because I know that they mentioned that in the statement as well. So what is an appropriate indication and what are some of the not so appropriate indications for testosterone use? So there is a lot of very supportive safety and efficacy data for testosterone use in women who are postmenopausal. This is beyond their menopause for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So basically low libido, low libido that is bothersome to a woman has a lot of support from the literature for using physiologic testosterone therapy to alleviate symptoms. Now, I stress physiologic because it's very important to keep the target range of the testosterone levels in the blood you're trying to achieve within what is the range for a pre-menopausal woman. 
Because if you start to go outside of that range, that's when side effects happen. That's when you can start getting hair growth, deepening of the voice, which is irreversible. Hair growth is reversible. Clitoromegaly, which is enlargement of the clitoris, another irreversible but rare side effect. Acne is another very common side effect. So when you start going outside the physiologic range, that's when you start encountering the side effects. And that's where the safety data starts to fade away because there just isn't a lot of safety data for long-term use of testosterone in the range beyond that of a premenopausal woman. But for postmenopausal women, keeping those testosterone levels in the physiological range has been shown to be safe and effective for low libido. Like I also mentioned, there's also an FDA-approved product. It's a vaginal product called Prasterone. It's on DHEA, and that helps with painful intercourse. So those are the main indications for testosterone. However, there are no FDA-approved products for women in the United States. I don't know about other countries if there are licensed products for it, but I tend to use a very reputable compounding pharmacy that I have a lot of experience with as a fertility specialist because most of our fertility drugs are compounded. And so we need a reliable pharmacy. So I use that pharmacy for my compounded testosterone products for the, the testosterone I prescribe. Is there such thing as an appropriate use for systemic DHEA? That's one that I've heard about, but I don't think it was mentioned in the statement unless I missed it. No, it wasn't. There isn't, to my knowledge, a lot of study on systemic DHEA in any role. There's certainly no FDA-approved role for it, and there's no FDA-approved synthetic systemic DHEA preparations that I'm aware of. I wanted to talk about hormone testing and sort of what's useful and what's not in terms of achieving a personalized prescription, I guess. So what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? So the North American Menopause Society and the Royal College and the British Medical Society agree that really the use is to exclude chronic disease that could be causing your menopause symptoms or if you are going into menopause early, it can help confirm the diagnosis of that, which needs to be diagnosed because intervention needs to be done if you have someone in early menopause. These customized hormone panels that many people are asking for, or doctors, other allopathic, non-allopathic doctors, allopathic means people that like myself, who have an MD from a more traditional pathway, but other types of doctoral experts will do these big hormone panels that cost a whole ton of money. And what those hormone panels really show you is one snapshot in time. In the perimenopause, you can check those hormones at 8 a.m. and check them again at 3 p.m. and they could be completely different. And so these big hormone panels are not really useful for guiding treatment. What is useful for guiding treatment is what is the woman experiencing? We treat the patient, not the lab value, when we're thinking about menopause experience, because the lab values aren't always reflective of the experience, because really, all that test is telling you is what's happening in the bloodstream. It's not telling you what's happening in the tissues. I liken it to a street in a neighborhood. You can be out in the street in your car, but you have no idea what's going on in those houses. And that's the way it is with hormones too. Hormone dynamics happen on the microscopic level, on the levels of the cells and tissues, and many times you can't see it in the bloodstream. Just like the IUD, you can have a progesterone IUD, have a whole ton of progesterone being secreted in the uterus, and you won't detect it in the blood. 
So blood tests are really only good for excluding chronic disease, like thyroid. If you think someone has an adrenal problem, you know, if they have adrenal hyperplasia or some other adrenal issue, that's where the tests are helpful, but not for a lot of these panels that people are paying good money for. There's one panel that I saw that said, we'll test you multiple times in the same month. Does your answer um, utility change at all? I mean, you still have the the street and the houses problem, even if you do that. <laughs> That's right. And still, if you check same time in the same month, I mean, you got to be checking people multiple times during the day. One of the perspectives I have as a fertility doctor is that I have some perimenopausal women who are trying to have babies and we have to watch their hormones day in and day out. I'll have them coming in every day. And so I'm watching their reproductive hormones and I can see how much they change how refractory they can be to treatment because the menstrual cycle gets very stubborn when it's perimenopausal. You can't control it so well with hormones. So those panels really are not helpful. You can check someone twice a day. And again, you still have the, what's going on in the street is not going on in the houses, but it's just such a dynamically changing system. It's really not helpful. And the main target is to address the symptoms. And so that's kind of the way that you guide the dosing. Exactly. So if I start a woman on an estrogen patch at 0.05, she was having hot flashes. I check in with her in two months and she says, Carla, my hot flashes are gone. This is a godsend. I'm not checking her estrogen levels. I don't care what her estrogen levels are because her hot flashes are gone. And that's really what matters. And I'm at a safe dose. So. And what is the right amount of time to sort of try out a dose? A couple months. Okay. A couple months. You may see effects in a couple months. And is it problematic to switch? I mean, are you going to expect Because menopause symptoms are triggered by fluctuating levels, do you expect Mm -hmm. to have kind of things go bad in between as you're adjusting? Not necessarily. It depends on how you do your adjustment. Like I have someone right now who's weaning off. And so you have to do that gradually. So, you know, you might try your dose for a week and then you go down to the next incremental lower dose and you do that for maybe two weeks. And then if everything feels okay, okay, we're going to kind of go down. And then I did that and someone she's like, oh, my hot flashes came back. And I was like, okay, we're going to go back up again. It's not time yet. So you just have to do things gradually rather than really dramatic, sudden changes. The body doesn't like that so much. Well, thank you so much for that excellent overview of the very complex landscape of menopausal hormone therapy. Thank you for having me.